Well, we've been working our way through this summer through 1 John. Uh, there's more to come after 1 John. We're going to be in 2 and 3 John and then the book of Jude. Um, but uh, this morning is the uh, penultimate message in 1 John, the next to the last. Earlier this week, I gave this message uh, the title, Faith That Overcomes the World. It's there on your screen. It's... Uh, it's in your sermon notes uh, forum this morning. It's based on John's language in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 5, and it's, it's an acceptable title. It's legitimate. Um, but the title I had thought about earlier was Getting Down to the Heart of the Matter. And I actually kind of like that even better. We're, we're considering, you know, I have, to, I have to have my sermon notes to Kathy Pruitt on Thursday, otherwise I'm toast, right? So... So I have to come up with a title. It's kind of a pressure I have every week. But but I really like this idea of just getting down to the heart of the matter. And we're considering 12 verses this morning. Um, John's cutting through in these 12 verses to what I would just describe as heartwood. And in verses 1 to 5, he's down to bedrock issues uh, regarding the essential identity, uh, the relationships, the faith of one who is truly born again as a believer. And then in verses 6 to 12, he's just unmistakably clear in his assertion of where and in whom genuine Christian faith rests. So if you in your life uh, are considering at present the prospect of uh, stepping across that line, trusting in Christ, um, and you're maybe just kind of in need of that, that last uh, answer to the question why you should take that step, or if you consider yourself to be a Christian, but sometimes you find yourself questioning whether you've clearly understood what essential Christianity is really all about, uh, then you'll want to listen up this morning. Uh, so we're in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12 of First John. Let's stand again and read this passage aloud together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's Word. You may be seated. 
As you may have noticed, this this passage is profoundly doctrinal. I'm not going to try to make it anything other than that. Uh, John is laying down some profound doctrine here. And so I'd encourage you to get a pen and take some notes, um, put a helmet on, and let's go. In verses 1 to 5, John makes five very clear statements that are true of every genuine Christ follower. In the last chapter, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, where we were recently, John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And then he says, And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now in chapter 5, verse 1, he says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He uses that same phrase. And so in this letter, he's he's providing proofs and tests of whether we have, in fact, been born of God. To understand that expression better, we need to look at the third chapter of John's Gospel, where Jesus himself said to his friend Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And just a few verses later in that dialogue with Nicodemus, Jesus clarified that being born again means to be born of the Spirit of God. The experience of spiritual rebirth is not something that you and I do for ourselves. It is the work of the Spirit of God from first to last to regenerate us, to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life, to do a work in us so so profound, so pervasive, that it can only be described as a new birth, a new genesis, a new creation. The Apostle Peter expressed this truth when he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice that that God himself is the causative factor in the new birth. That the death and resurrection of Jesus provided the means. God is the causative factor, the death of Resurrection of Jesus are the means. The, the, and through that, God opened the way for us to be born again, to experience a new birth, to experience a new relationship with Him. And that's important to understanding what, what John is saying here in 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, I want, I want you to pay attention to this because... It really is of doctrinal importance. I hope that you understand this morning that doctrine matters. What is true matters. The verb tense in the Greek text of the phrase translated has been is the key that unlocks John's meaning here. It conveys the clear sense that believing is the, listen now, the consequence of the new birth, 
not its condition or its cause. Let me say that again. Believing is the consequence of the birth, of the new birth, not its condition or its cause. Let me put that another way. The fact that you believe is the the evidence, the indicator that you have experienced the rebirth. It's not the reason for it. It's not you believe, therefore you are reborn, but instead you are reborn, therefore you believe. That's what John is saying here. And it's important for us to wrap our minds around it and our hearts because that's not usually the way you hear it. It's not usually the way we put it. So why spend so much time on that? Because it just, first of all, because it's true. (laughs) Because John is saying something that we need to hear. But also because I just think it, it just radically elevates the greatness of God's love and his mercy and his grace toward us. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'm a fisherman and I like the image of God reeling me in. He's got me on his hook and he's reeling me in. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, see, God didn't just sit back. He doesn't just sit back and wait for us to come to him. He takes the initiative so that if you have come to personal faith in Jesus Christ, it's not because you initiated the relationship. But rather that in his great love and his mercy and his grace toward you, God initiated the relationship. In other words, you were being reborn before you were fully conscious that it was happening. And so you can't take any credit for it whatsoever. How many of you this morning would say, I clearly recall the moment of my birth? Remember that? That was a great day, wasn't it? I mean, you got spanked that day right out of the chute. Welcome to life. Whack! How many of you remember that moment? That moment you emerged from mama? No, you don't remember that. Have any of you looked back and said, man, I did a great job of being reborn or being born, didn't I? I mean, I'm pretty good at being born. I I did a good job. No, you don't say that. Why? You can't take any credit for it. You, You weren't even conscious that it was happening. And that's precisely what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. There's a translation of the Bible that's, that's called the complete Jewish Bible. And I, I love the, the way that the, the complete Jewish Bible translation puts Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For you have been delivered by grace through trusting. And even this is not your accomplishment, but it is God's gift. You were not delivered by your own actions. Therefore, no one should boast. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, give thanks that God chose at some point, God chose before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says, to save you. He did that of his own free will, apart from any merit on your part and any obligation on his. 
My friend John Jenkins says, I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. Second, in the latter part of verse 1, John implies that everyone who has been born of God loves the Father. Use the word implied there. Everyone who has born of God, been born of God, loves the Father. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, he writes, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. You notice that little implication there. It's a turn of a phrase. It's not explicitly stated. It's implied that if you're born of God, you love the Father. The new birth brought about by the Holy Spirit delivers us into a family. It's the family of God. We are born into His forever family. And the Spirit within us leads us to love God the Father. Paul wrote in Galatians 4 verse 6, Because you are sons, because you are children of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Again, it's not something we do. It's not something we generate. The Spirit enters our hearts. We love God. And we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. That word Abba is a term of endearment in a Jewish family. We recently watched a a television show in our home uh, that uh, pictured a little girl who was being raised in a Jewish household. And she was looking at a a portrait or, or a photograph of her parents. And she pointed to her mother and said, Ima, and to her father and said, Abba. Having become God's children, the, the Spirit enables us to enter into a relationship of love and personal identification with our Heavenly Father. He is our Abba. He is our Daddy. He is our Father. We love Him. And third, because we're born into the family of God, because we enjoy a love relationship with Him, John adds, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever is born of Him. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever is born of Him. 1 John 5, again verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. That that loving Family relationship with the Father leads to a loving family relationship with our spiritual siblings, the children of God. You get in the picture here? I mean, John's talking in in family terms. He's describing a, a family relationship. You might recall what John said back in chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brothers, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean, how how many of you parents have said to your children, on more than one occasion, stop it, love one another. <laughs> All of us have, right? And to John, it was, it was just inconceivable that anyone as a reborn, adopted child of God could abide in a loving family relationship with God the Father and at the same time despise his brothers and sisters in Christ. And you say, well, there are a lot of God's children who are simply hard to love. 
And I agree with you. You are one of them. And so am I. And that's why the word whoever in the latter part of verse 1 is so important and so convicting. It's the same word that's translated everyone at the start of the verse. It literally means each and every one without exception. It can also be translated whatever, whomever and whatever. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. That means that if I've experienced the rebirth of the Spirit, I'm equipped, I'm enabled, I'm expected to love my spiritual brothers and sisters of every age, every skin color, every temperament, every denomination, every political affiliation, every ethnicity, every nation, every language, every educational level, every socioeconomic status, and on and on it goes. Whoever has been born of the Heavenly Father, you and I are equipped, enabled, and expected to love. Then John says, by the way, that was all just one verse, all all that went ahead there. That that was just one verse. In verse 2, he goes on, and you're thinking, this doesn't bode well. That was just one verse. How long is he going to be going? Everyone who loves the Father obeys his commands. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Everyone who loves the Father obeys His commands. And again, John's laying down some radical stuff here. By this we know. This is how we know. Some of your translations read that way. This is how we know. Proof positive that we love the children of God is that we love God and obey His commandments. In other words, God, our Heavenly Father, might say to us quite often, don't tell me that you love your brothers and sisters when you're living in disobedience to me. And how many of you as parents have said the same thing to your kids? Don't tell me that you love me when you're fighting with your brother or your sister, putting them down, picking on them. Don't tell me that you love me when when you don't love my other children. It doesn't add up in this family. Genuine agape is demonstrated in obedience. Don't tell me you love me if you're not obeying me. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now please understand what Jesus is saying. He wasn't asserting that you can obey your way to heaven. It's impossible. He was instead naming the essential character and identity of those who by virtue of the new birth have become the children of God. Only the children of God get to live forever in the house of God. Only the children of God have within them the innate desire and the capacity to do the will of their heavenly Father. 
He's saying something distinctive about you and about me. So what are His commandments? Well, there are hundreds of them, aren't there? Jesus summarized them and tied them together in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that when all is said and done, you can hang all of those hundreds of Old Testament laws, all the commandments of Jesus, all the teaching of the prophets on these two two hooks, love for God, love for others, love for your neighbor. They are essential. They are inseparable. Neither, John says, are they burdensome. Neither are they burdensome. Check out verse 3. For this is the love of God. Same phraseology he was using last week in the last passage we saw, the precise definitions of love. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Greek word translated burdensome here is Barus, again, you don't have to remember that, but it's the same word that Jesus used when he said of the Pharisees that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. I did a little study on that word barus, and it it actually describes a weight that is so great, so oppressive, that that it renders a person unable to function, unable to enjoy freedom of movement. And I was trying to think of an example in my own life of that. And and just the other day I was loading a a very heavy, very sturdy workbench into my truck. And because I'm a guy, I decided to do it alone. How'd that work for you? Yeah, good question. I'm about to tell you. So, so I get this thing up on its side, actually up on its end, and I'm pivoting it, you know, and I'm, and I get it under the tailgate, and I, and I start to lift, and that moment came. You know that moment where you go, "Why did I try to do this?" And it's that moment where it's not moving, and you don't think it might ever move. And you might just get old standing there. That's barus. That, that's that heavy, heavy weight. Let me take it a, a step further here. Here's another example I thought of. It's a little darker. When, when the condominium in, condominium building in Florida came down recently, did you see that in the news? And people were buried under Rubble, concrete. That's the picture here. The weight is so heavy, you, you can't move. That's, that's what Jesus is saying the Pharisees did. That's what he's saying his commands are not. Contrast that with what Jesus said as he invited would-be disciples to follow him. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden, Barus, my burden is light. In verse 4, John tells us why the commandments of God are not burdensome. It's because personal faith in God's Son overcomes the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John begins verse 4 with that connecting word for, meaning because. And the reason why obedience to the commandments of God is not burdensome, he wants us to know, is that every man, woman, and child who has been born of God overcomes the world. Incidentally, that word overcomes is the Greek word nikao, which comes from nike, or as the shoe company pronounces it, nike. And it means victory. It means victory. A 19th century commentator put it well when he described the world here as the sum of all the limited transitory powers opposed to God which make obedience difficult. I find that to be a very, very helpful definition. The sum of all the limited transitory powers opposed to God which make obedience difficult. And you might find yourself at times, I do because I'm a sinner, I, I, I find myself often going, man, this, this, this obedience thing, this isn't for sissies. This is hard stuff. Sometimes being obedient to God when it goes against your will and it goes against your your desires is like trying to run through knee-deep wet cement. Everything that comes against you as a child of God and a disciple of Jesus Christ that makes obedience to God exceedingly difficult. That's the world. We might think of such things as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life that John referenced in chapter 2. It might come in the form of pretentious intellectual arguments that are set up in opposition to God and to His Word. It may come in the form of spiritual oppression, physical persecution, social rejection, economic sanctions because of your identification with Jesus. If it interferes with your obedience to God, it's included in what John means by the world. And three times in two verses, John repeats that phrase, overcomes the world. I don't know about you, but so often it seems like the world is winning, doesn't it? Like we're up against overwhelming odds. When people and circumstances turn against you, when world events are looking bleak and hopeless, and in those times we can feel anxious and we can feel guilty or fearful, defeated, 
But here's the good news. John's first use of that phrase in verse 4 points to a one-and-done action. It's not you might overcome the world. You have overcome the world. You overcame the world past tense when you were born again. When you experienced that spiritual rebirth, or more precisely, God overcame the world on your behalf when by His Spirit He gave you new birth. He rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son He loves so that the prince of darkness, the prince of this world, has no more jurisdiction, no more authority over you. You're no longer a member of Adam's family. You're now a member of the family of God through faith in his Son. The next two uses of that phrase, overcomes the world, are in the present continuous tense. You you have overcome the world, and you keep on overcoming the world, John says, by your faith, by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here John's argument in verse 5 then comes full circle. Verses 1 to 5 comes full circle. In verse 1 he wrote, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The late John Stott offers this summary. Whatever form the world's assault on the church may take, the victory is ours. The unshakable conviction that the Jesus of history is the Christ, in the sense in which the false teachers denied it, the preexistent Son of God who became human in order to bring us salvation and life, enables us to triumph over the world. Confidence in the divine human person of Jesus is the one weapon against which neither the error nor the evil nor the force of the world can prevail. I love that. I love it because it's true. In verses 6 to 12 then, the apostle narrows his focus even more on the true identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Now, earlier in this series, I mentioned to you that that in the first century, a number of heresies or false teachings arose that challenged the simplicity and the purity of the message of the gospel. One of the earliest ones, one that most historians believe John was probably responding to, was set forth by a popular and quite influential teacher named Serinthus. His influence was widespread. He taught that the historical and quite uh, the historical Jesus and the and the Christ were not one and the same. That at his birth Jesus was merely another Jewish child. The Christ, Serinthus claimed, was a spiritual entity, like an angel as it were, that emanated from God, came upon Jesus at his baptism, rested on him during his earthly ministry, but departed from him at some point prior to the crucifixion. So that when Jesus died on the cross, according to Serinthus and those who followed him, 
It was a mere man dying there, not the Christ, not the Son of God. And consequently, Jesus could not have been our Savior because a mere man could never, by his death, atone for his own sins, let alone anyone else's. So notice again John's precise language in verses 1 and 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus is the Christ, John says. They are one and the same. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the God-man. I want you to see three points that John makes here in verses 6 to 12 regarding what God himself has said about his Son, and then I'm done. First, in verses 6 to 8, John wants us to pay attention, I think, to the fact that God's testimony concerning his Son has been persuasively supplied. It's been persuasively supplied. In verses 6 to 8, John takes us to a courtroom. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, there's a set of laws given regarding the witnesses in a courtroom. Now, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 19, the foundational principle is laid down. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 16, Jesus applies that same law, that same principle, to resolving conflict between believers in the church. So John calls here in 1 John 5, three witnesses to the stand. And they are the water, the blood, and the Spirit of God, and each of them testifies, all of them agree. Again, John writes, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Notice that, that John calls him not just Jesus, which conveys his humanity, and not just the Christ, which conveys his deity as the anointed one, but Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully man, fully God. Notice he says that Jesus came not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, not just in his baptism, as Serinthus wanted to assert, but also in his death, in his crucifixion. Witness number one, the water. The water. Christians down through the centuries who have looked at verse 6 have taken water to, to be a reference to Jesus' baptism by John the baptizer in the Jordan River. Here's the description of that event in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it, let it be so now, 
For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There's a whole lot going on there. By by being by by submitting to being baptized by John, Jesus fully identifies with us in his humanity. That that's a part, I think, of what Jesus was saying in that phrase, fulfilling all righteousness. God the Father then verbally and audibly affirms Jesus in his deity as his eternal son. And in between, coming out of the water of baptism, it's the Spirit of God that descends on him, not some other entity, not some emanation from God, not some semi-quasi-pseudo-demi-angel, but the very Spirit of God. The water, the baptism of Jesus testifies, the events that surrounded it, testifies to his essential identity as the God-man. Incidentally, this is one of the few places in Scripture where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all represented at the same time in the same place. Witness number two, the blood. The blood clearly points to Jesus' finished work through his death on the cross where his blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And, and, and there's a whole lot we could say about that. I'm running out of time. What we need to understand is that John is stressing the unity of the earthly redemptive career of Jesus the Christ. The one who came, came from heaven. That same one passed through the water of baptism, and it was that same one who died on the cross, shedding his blood. He is one person who was simultaneously from his birth to his death and forevermore both the man Jesus and the Christ, God's anointed one. Witness number three, the Spirit of God. What is the testimony of the Spirit of God? In promising the apostles that the Holy Spirit would come, Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So the testimony of the Holy Spirit is, first of all, truthful. He is the Spirit of truth. He came to guide us into all the truth. Secondly, the testimony of the Holy Spirit comes from God. The Holy Spirit never speaks on His own authority. He speaks only what He hears from the Father. Which is why we should be Cautious, wary, listen carefully when someone says, well, the Holy Spirit prompted me to do X, Y, or Z. And you, and you, 
and you listen to what they say the Holy Spirit prompted them to do, and you go, really? Really? The Spirit prompted you to do that? Wow. You sure it was the Spirit? Because here's what God's Word said, and I don't think, I don't think God's schizophrenic. I don't think he says one thing at one time and something totally opposite at another time. The Spirit comes from God. He speaks only on the authority of God. He speaks only what he hears from God the Father. And third, the focus of the Holy Spirit's testimony is on Jesus Christ. See, the Holy Spirit, Scriptures never tell us that the Holy Spirit draws attention to himself. And and literally, there are some communities of believers where all you ever hear is the Holy Spirit. You never hear the name Jesus. And you can be pretty sure on that basis that that's a heretical church. His testimony is on Jesus Christ. He draws no attention to himself. On the contrary, the purpose of God the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is to glorify God the Son elevate him, to make him known, to reveal him, to disclose him, to exalt him. So when we think about the the testimony of the Spirit regarding his Son, we, we might think of the prophetic testimony as the Spirit came upon the Old Testament prophets and inspired them to to speak and write about the Christ who is yet to come. We might think of the testimony of the Spirit through the apostles who were the eyewitnesses to the person and work of Christ. They became the primary interpreters to the church of who Jesus was, what he did, why it mattered, how we should respond. We should think of the testimony of the Spirit through the church to the world as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should think of the inner witness of the Spirit as he convicts us of sin, opens our eyes to see the truth regarding Jesus, and persuades us of our need for the Savior. God's testimony concerning his son has been abundantly and persuasively supplied. Next, John tells us in verses 9 to 10 that God's testimony concerning his son is absolutely authoritative. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So having brought three powerful and persuasive witnesses to the stand whose testimonies are in complete harmony and total agreement, John says, you'll receive the testimony of two or three in court. I've offered you the threefold witness of God, which is greater than all. So you're going to have to deal with that. Wrap your mind around that. And John suggests only two possible verdicts, belief or unbelief. The one who believes, he says, has the testimony in himself. And again, that's consistent with what John is saying. We believe because God has worked already in us. He has planted his testimony within us, and everything else is response. 
The one who believes internalizes the testimony, receives it, takes it to heart. The one who does not believe, who rejects the testimony of God, holds God, as it were, in contempt and makes him out to be a liar. Finally, John says in verses 11 to 12 that God's testimony concerning his son is eternally, eternally consequential. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. remember a friend of mine years ago preaching this text, and, and at this point he goes, I'm sorry, I'm just the messenger. The message is clear. It's uncompromising. It's inescapable. Eternal life is in God's Son, and it may be found nowhere else. It's not a prize to be earned. It is instead an undeserved gift. God grants eternal life to those who believe in his Son. Eternal life is a present possession. It's not something we're waiting for. In the great by and by but something we take hold of in the here and now. Jesus said that he came that we might have life, have it now, have it abundantly. So having heard the testimony of God concerning his son, let me ask you, do you have the son? That's what John says it comes down to. Do you have the son? Do you have eternal life? Because if you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. The reason we're here as a church is to proclaim this message and this message alone. Do you have the Son? Do you have eternal life? There was a thing on Facebook this week, you know, where somebody said, describe your job in the poorest of terms. I thought about it for a while, and I, and I just wrote, I keep telling the same old story. This is it. This is it. It's a story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. As we come to the Lord's table today, it doesn't look much like a table. It's just this little cup and this little wafer. But as we come to this moment, this ritual, if you will, of the church, communion is all about that He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life because Jesus died to open the way so your sins would be forgiven. You could be justified by God. You could receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Him.
in his son. So Jesus, on the night that he was going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, during the Passover Seder meal with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat it. One loaf, one Lord, one Savior. Communion is for believers. It's not for inquirers, hangers-on, pretenders. It's for disciples. Disciples who are sinners. Disciples who have a Savior. So after that meal, Jesus interrupted the script that every one of those disciples that were sitting around him had known since childhood. The Haggadah, the script of the Passover meal. And he took a cup, which they knew as the cup of redemption. And he picked it up and he said, this cup, and they're with him so far, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And they said, what? What? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So as often as you drink this cup, every Passover, remember me. Remember the redemption that I'm about to accomplish for you at the cross. Take it and drink it. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand it, to comprehend it. We thank you for the gift of eternal life in your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son who became man to die in our place as our substitute, fully man, fully representative of all of us, and yet without sin, so that you were the perfect sacrifice. We thank you for that gift. And I pray today for those who are standing on the one-yard line of faith and haven't crossed the finish line. I, I pray, Lord, that today might be the day that you work in them that gift of faith, that new birth that would lead to eternal life. And I pray it in the name of your Son, Christ, our Savior, our one and only Savior. Amen.